It's, uh, it's, thank you, Christy, and, and it's just a unique uh, day, you know, as we've merged two churches, um, just to kind of help my, save my voice, because I've, I've I got a bit of a cold. I asked Christy to do this, and Alex, our, our traditional worship musician, uh, filled in for Dan, and then also to help with my voice, um, our associate pastor, Amanda, who's normally at City Friends right now, is going to come up and lead us through communion later, so it's just a kind of a... It's cool to have it all in one church because we can really support each other. So, um, uh, and, 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 and specifically, Alex, thanks again for doing that. You know, it's crazy, like, between Alex and Dan, we probably have two of the best worship musicians in Columbus, in my very humble opinion. So it's just so great to, um, if you've not been to the traditional service, Alex does a great job on both the organ, piano, et cetera. So uh, be sure to visit sometime, like just for experience something different. It's fun. Sermon's the same most weeks, and so it's good. So a, a few years ago, I, um, I preached a sermon on, a sermon series on evangelism, right? And actually, uh, here's what the uh, series graphic looked like. Tim, I think I have a slide for this, hopefully. Yeah, there you go. It's these intersecting images from Columbus and the Grandview area with you know, evangelism right there, small and centered uh, right there in the image. And I was actually pretty, pretty uh, proud of this series. We talked about what the gospel actually means, and we talked about how to discuss our faith with people who don't share the same faith. And we talked about how, you know, the idea was to reclaim evangelism from the toxic, overbearing, trigger-producing, harmful, proselytizing version of evangelism that some of us were raised in. The kind of aggressive evangelism where you start by going to a stranger and you ask them, if you died today, do you know if you would go to heaven? I won't have you raise your hands, but have you ever asked a stranger that question? If you have, it tells us a lot about your, your, your early experiences like mine. The series was meant to push back against that kind of thinking and approach. It, it offered a healthier way, but for some, uh, it didn't necessarily matter. Just seeing that slide with the series title, Evangelism, was too much. Um, and some people in our church weren't interested. I remember one person in particular. The week before the series kicked off, we announced it. We said, hey, this is going to be our new series. We're going to talk about evangelism. And they saw it, and they were out. She told me that she needed to take a break from church, that she, you know, she didn't want to really be a part of a church that talked about evangelism because of the pressure and expectation and the toxic ways that people have done evangelism was so against what she believed that she didn't even want to be a part of a church that even discussed those things. And I get it. I mean, it was a trigger. Um, it was kind of sad, though. I think what we actually talked about in the series uh, was far more inclusive and welcoming than what this word means for a lot of people. I think she would have maybe even liked the series, um, but the concept was too much of a trigger. And this is the only time this has happened. This is a thing, if you didn't know this. We had a guest preacher once who speak on sharing your faith, telling people about your faith. Uh, years after this series, uh, during COVID actually, and it wasn't even a series, it was just a sermon about sharing your faith and uh, I don't even know if they used the word evangelism per se, but it was just about that idea of what it means to talk to people about your faith. And another friend, a different person, told me that they needed to take a break from church. It was just too much. I don't, can't handle it. And, and I'm not being judgmental. Triggers be triggers. And, and there is no shame in that. I've got my own triggers. 
Um, but I know for some who are coming out of high-pressure Christianity, being asked to share your faith, the idea of that is a bit of a trigger, all right? So I say all I have to say, this is your trigger warning today. Because <laughs> we're going to talk about how to share your faith. Whew. I am going to talk about how to share your faith with people, um, but you should know this, all right? That, that I understand that many people are uncomfortable with this talk, topic, but if you stay with me, I think you'll see that the way we talk about it might not only be bearable, but could help all of us think about sharing our faith a different way and, and maybe even help us work through some stuff. So, so I get it. Triggers still be triggers, and there's no shame in that. So you do what you need to feel safe. If you feel like you need to check out and play a game on your phone, you, no judgment for me. Uh, judgment-free zone. So to tackle this topic, I thought it'd be interesting to start uh, unpacking. We're going we're to talk about this this week and then in two weeks. Uh, by dissecting some verses that I've encountered, having grown up in an evangelical you know, setting where sharing your faith with strangers was really the ultimate test of faith. Like, you're not really a Christian unless you do this. That's the setting that um, I was raised in and that I experienced. <coughs> Excuse me. Of course, I've moved on from this particular expression of faith. I've found most evangelicals have, uh, have two as well. I mean, I think most modern Gen Z evangelicals aren't quite as aggressive as some of the boomer versions. But, <coughs> excuse me. But I couldn't remember some of those key verses, so I had to Google search them. You know, so I put it in the Google. What are some of the good verses to encourage people to share their faith? And I was not disappointed. Oh, a treasure of great lists are available to you to encourage you. And one of those verses stood out. I actually like this verse. It's uh, 1 Peter 3.15. It says this, uh, always be prepared. This is exactly the kind of verse that shows up in lists like this. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Anyone, uh, anyone memorize this verse growing up? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's not a bad verse. Kind of a nice verse if you think about it, especially if it's not triggering. Um, always be prepared <clears throat> to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. You are filled with hope, and you should tell people why. So I'm going to start with this verse today. We're going to look at this verse. Of course, we can't look at this verse in isolation. That would be silly. Um, so we're going to look at it in context. So let's jump to the New Testament where we find a little letter by the name of 1 Peter. If you have your Bibles, you can pull it out and you can find this as well. Um, or the words will be on the screen here a little bit. But this letter is one of the first letters attributed to Peter, the leader of the early church, a person who felt especially called to reach Jewish people. So his focus is Jewish people. So he talks about Jewish people versus Gentiles a little bit in this letter. And he's telling Jewish people about who Jesus is as the Messiah. <coughs> this letter is different than a lot of Paul's letters. So I'm going to put my teacher hat on, and we're going to learn something for a second. This letter is what is known as a Catholic letter. Now, that does not mean that the Pope endorses it. That's not what we're talking about. Not that use of Catholic, not the denomination, but Catholic as its original intent, a word that means universal or general, not specific. So the Catholic Church is named the Catholic Church because they view themselves as the church, all right? 
So that's what Catholic means. Um, if you read various creeds, you'll see Catholic in the creed, and it's referring to you know, the Catholic Church, not the denomination, but the universal church. So this is a Catholic letter in that it is not written to a specific church. Most of the letters that Paul wrote or were attributed to writing were written to specific churches, like the church in Ephesus or the church in Corinth, or to a particular person, to uh, the letter that is written to Timothy or to Philemon. But Peter's letters and others like Peter's, like Jude and John, weren't written to specific people or specific churches, and thus they're Catholic letters. And because of this, they carry, uh, instead of the, they carry the name of the person who wrote them. So it's an easy way to remember. Philemon is named Philemon in the New Testament because it was written to Philemon. Same with Ephesians, Corinthians, Colossians, etc. Whereas 1 Peter is 1 Peter because it's the first letter that Peter wrote. All right, so just, you know, just helpful information as you want to study the Bible. So it was written, uh, it was written to the church in general when the church was small and was really spread out. The church was not a major religion at this point when this letter was written like it is today. It was a small cult or sect of Judaism. So it was like a branch off of Judaism. And because it was new and because it was small and because they had practices that were different than Jews, people feared it, as we often do of anything that's new or strange. And so it was not well-respected by the general population. In fact, it was generally, uh, Christianity was generally hated, feared, and misunderstood. Most new things, most things that we don't understand get hated or feared because we don't, you know, understand them. And that was the case for Christianity when it started. <coughs> now, this is the major focus of Paul's letter, of Peter's letter. He's writing to the church that is small, a minority in the world surrounded by powerful empires and religions, a church that was hated by everyone. And it's important to realize this because Peter's letter was written for Christians when they were the minority. And the things he says are really helpful for Christians who find themselves as a minority who are cast aside and looked down. And I say this for this reason. Friends, as American Christians, we are not the minority. All right? So that should influence our interpretation. Christians are not the minority in America. I'll give you a couple of bullet points to help prove my point. Almost all of our major religious holidays as Christians are national holidays. That is not the case for other religions in our country. And that was certainly not the case for early Christians. The early Christians were not getting off for, you know, their kids weren't staying home for Easter or Good Friday or, you know, there was no Christmas break, okay? It just wasn't happening. So also, think about it, like every U.S. president, manner in chief, since the American Revolution has claimed to be Christian, all right? So we are not the minority. Do you see what I'm saying? Estimates from 2021 suggest this, that of the entire population, Excuse me. Million, as much as 63% is Christian in America. This letter wasn't written with us in mind. This was written for Christians who maybe numbered 12 to 50 people in a city of 100,000 or a million. All right? It's a di imagine how your faith would be different if that was the case. And it is the case for some people in some places, right? It's just not the case 
for us. So it was written for Christians who were small, um, who were part of a small sect and not. It doesn't mean we can't learn something from it today. The thing that I want to encourage us when we read some of these New Testament letters is this. We need to make sure that we don't over-identify with the letter. In other words, when you read a passage in the New Testament that talks about persecution, I've seen some Christians over-identify with it. Friends, just because someone is mean to you does not mean you are being persecuted because you're a Christian. Just because someone who is LGBTQ wants to hire you, like literally pay you to bake a cake for their wedding and you don't want to, that doesn't mean you've been persecuted. You know what I'm saying? All right? That isn't persecution. Persecution is when power is played out against entire people groups who are often minorities. Um, that's persecution. So I just want to... This is just helpful not only for our passage today, and if you read all of 1 Peter, but for a lot of the New Testament for us to just kind of not over-identify. And there's still stuff we can learn, and there's still stuff we can apply, but we just have to be a little bit more reasonable and understand what we're doing. And specifically in America, we need to learn to distinguish between the grief that comes when we've lost influence or power in society with actual persecution, because those are not the same thing. So when it talks about persecution, let's remember that and not over-identify. And then I'm going to get off my soapbox. Now we've got the context. There's still lots of good advice in the letter. Here's one piece of advice I want to look at. 1 Peter chapter 2 says this. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. Christians in a time when they were the minority, when people looked down on them, we're told to show everyone else living around them respect, treat them with honor, or hold people outside of their faith in high esteem. And here's why I want to just, this is a starting point for us. If Christians living in a place as the minority are expected to treat other people who are looking down on them with respect, how much more should we? Seems like a pretty good place to start when it comes to sharing our faith. So with all this in mind, let's look at the verse we can't just look at the verse um, uh, to properly. We've got to look at the context. So we're going to look at Second, uh, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 8. It says this. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 8. Finally, all of you. Be like-minded. Be sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. So, when talking about sharing your faith or talking about what you believe, we should be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and humble. All right, Alex, you want to come up for the closing song? I think we've covered all of the, like, what else is there to say at this point? You know, I, j- I joke. Alex is like, well, I don't know. This, I've never been to the service. Let's get up. <laughs> Imagine if we took this verse seriously. Okay, I asked you how many memorized the other verse about sharing your faith. A few of you raised your hands. A few of you nodded. How many have memorized this verse? Ooh. Missed opportunity. 
Next verse, he goes on, he says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. <clears throat> to a world where Christians were surrounded by people who looked down on them, spit on them, thought less of them, Peter says, don't treat others the way you've been treated. Get back at people by blessing them. The whole world might be against you, but in Jesus, you are never against the world. So here's the first lesson in sharing our faith. It's an important lesson we should never forget. I have to stand up for this. I believe it so much. I don't even feel good. I'm going to stand up anyways. We share our faith by being a blessing to others. We share our faith by being a blessing to others who don't share our faith. We share our faith by being a blessing to others, period. In fact, Scripture makes this really clear over and over again, including here. See what it says? It says, if you bless others, then you will inherit a blessing. This goes all the way back to Abraham. In other words, we will be blessed as people of faith when we bless others. We share our faith not in an attempt to necessarily convert somebody, but in an attempt to bless them. That's the point. We're, we're talking about sharing our faith, and, and I'll just be honest with you. We're talking about it this week and in two weeks because I want to encourage you to invite people to our grand opening on September 24th. So cards on the table, that's why. Also because we've been walking through practices of what it means to be all in. And this one is under the category of one of the things we believe, reaching intentionally. God is too good to keep a secret. So I do. I hope that you'll invite somebody. But we also know that sharing our faith is, 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 is not just about inviting someone to church. It is about being a blessing, which is why we're very intentionally the day before going to literally bless every corner of the city by going and taking donations to what someone else came up with the word. We didn't come up with this. We're just leaning into it. Blessing boxes, free little pantries. So side note, if you have not signed up, please do. Christy said it is our hope to stock all 100 boxes. I'm going to correct her. We will be stocking all 100 boxes one way or the other. So um, please, please donate. Please volunteer. It's going to happen. Um, Peter goes on, and here he does what um, many early Christians do. He's, you see, he's right at a time when there wasn't to remind ourselves that. And all they have is the Old Testament, what we call the Hebrew Bible. And I, le I learned that in seminary. Sem my seminary always referred to the Old Testament as the Hebrew Bible. And I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense, um, instead of the Old Testament. So they had the Hebrew Bible. And so whenever you wanted to make a good point in one of these New Testament letters, you had to quote you had to kind of like show us where it's taught. So he quotes from Psalms. So 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12, it's taken from Psalm uh, chapter uh, 34. It says this. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his eyes are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is a great psalm. I went back and read Psalm 34, and it's, it's one of the psalms that is a verse that I actually really do like. It's uh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Anyone familiar with that verse? Yeah. 
which of all the passages drilled into me about sharing my faith, I, I still love that one. I found that if people give God a try, they usually aren't disappointed. And I think that's true for a lot of really good things like giving, discipleship, small groups. We're nervous about starting these things in our faith, but you give it a try, you're going to be like, oh, this is actually pretty great, and it's filling a hole that I felt was missing in my life. But this psalm has a lot of other things to say. He says that if you want to see things work out, he says if you want to see good days, or if you want to, you know, live the good life, there are some things you should do, and there are some things you shouldn't do. So you shouldn't lie and trick people, which seems obvious, but still important to remind you all, in case you have forgotten. He said, he says, you should seek peace and pursue it, which repeating himself so that we don't miss it. Shalom, the Hebrew word for peace, the well-being of all people, to seek peace, to go after the overall well-being of society. That's what it meant to seek peace, and you should go after peace. You do that, and life will be good for you because life will be good for everyone. And it's really kind of simple logic. You want a good life? Do good in the world, and the world will be better for you and everyone else. You see, that's just, he's saying the same thing in a different way. And he's supporting his case by referencing the Psalms. He says, by blessing others, all right, I'm going to say, this will be, this is way obvious. I'm going to make it sound complicated so I can impress you, all right? By blessing others, you will bless yourself because by blessing others and making the world a better place, you will be making the world a better place for yourself as well. And this is at the heart of most community development. This is in my notes, but I was thinking about it a lot. We're engaged in, in uh, violence reduction, and you know it starts with this very simple idea that everyone wants a safer neighborhood, including people committing violent acts. Do you think they want to? Do you think people who commit violent acts want to commit violent acts? No, they're scared. They were hurt themselves at one point. They were carrying a gun because someone had recently shot them and they don't know any other way out. But when you really just lay it out, it's like, no, we all want safer neighborhoods. Everyone will say, yeah, I do. I want a safer neighborhood. And that's the simple logic that he's starting with. He says there is something that we all want, regardless of what we believe, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a gang member or not, whether you're educated or not, there's some things that we all want. So atheists, agnostic, Christians, Muslims, Mormons, church people, non-church people, we all want our community to be better. And this is exactly what Peter's getting at in verse uh, 13. He says, why wouldn't you? So verse 13, he asks this like, rhetorical question. He says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? This is a great rhetorical question. No one's going to be mad at you if you're actually trying to make the world a better place. It's the biggest, one of the biggest lessons I've learned uh, when it comes to telling people that I'm a Christian, when it tell, comes to telling people about our church, when it comes to letting people know that I'm a pastor. Um, a side note, when people do find out I'm a pastor, what's the number one thing that happens? They apologize for cussing. That's what happens. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. And then they stop cussing moving forward. That's what... But besides that, like, so, like, I don't always tell people I'm a pastor, but the one thing I've learned about, like, letting people know I'm a Christian, kind of, like, being a little bit more honest about my faith and, you know, letting people know that I'm a pastor, letting people know about my church is this. People, and I'm going to say it, this might bother some of you, but I'm going to say it this way anyways. People will forgive you for being a Christian if they believe that you honestly want to do good things in the world and you're not going to be judgmental. 
I've found that to be true. People will forgive you for being a Christian if they realize that you want just good things to be in the world and you're going to do it in a non-judgmental way. And I have found this to be so true. I just talked to somebody on the phone. I'm in a writer's group. I was talking with one of the writers. Man, she lives in a small town, has a non-binary child. And her small conservative Christian community is just beating her family up. And so, you know, I mentioned that I'm a pastor. And I asked her how that's going. And she's like, I don't think you want to get into that with me. And I was just like, no, I'm, I'm legitimately concerned. We had a whole conversation about it. And I found that she was able to get over the fact that I was a pastor when she found out I wasn't going to join the ranks of people trying to ruin her family. So... I was also talking to my friend at the Grandview Hop, who happens to be, I think, an atheist or agnostic. I don't know. He's certainly not interested in church. Um, But I told him about the Bless Our City event. He loved it. He said, you're doing the good work, (laughs) which is great. And he took a flyer. He promised to make a donation. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? There are people who will harm you if you're eager to do good, but those people aren't worth your time anyways. Reasonable people, even who aren't people of faith, are not, they're going to love you if that's what you're about. Who's going to argue with you if you actually want to be a blessing with no strings attached? Sharing our faith is meant to be like that. Peter goes on. I'm going to skip to verse 13. Some of the verses I'm skipping have to do with persecution. You can read those, but I'm going to skip those because we've already talked about that and what that means. So verse 13, it's our verse for today. And now he finally says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. For Peter, it's all about hope. He doesn't say, always be ready to give a theological dissertation for every argument against our faith, or always be ready to argue with everyone about what you believe. He says, be ready when people ask about your hope. This is huge for Peter. First Peter talks about hope a lot. He talks about it specifically in a number of different places. Um, Here's a couple of verses. I think, Tim, I have a slide for this, hopefully. He says, praise be to God, the Father, Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. He says, be fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be bought to you, brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. He goes on, 1 Peter 1, 21, who, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. And here's the thing about hope and why I think hope is so important for this. Hope doesn't diminish suffering. Hope isn't hyper-positive Christianity family radio style. Hope doesn't diminish the hard things in life, the difficult things in life. Hope doesn't diminish fear. It doesn't diminish accountability, pretending like everything's fine and nobody's doing anything wrong. Hope doesn't claim everything is okay. If hope claimed everything was okay, it would not be hope. Hope is by definition something that we're hoping for in the future. Hope is the belief that things could be better. And as Christians, I think hope is the belief that things could be better for everyone. Hope is the belief that through God, things will work out for everyone. Hope is the belief that no matter what someone is going through, no matter how bad it's gotten, there's a chance things could work out. Just a chance things could be better for them, for everyone. And I tell you what, couldn't everyone lose, use a little bit more hope? 
Peter seems to think so. He says it, look at this verse. He says, always and to everyone. Always and with everyone. Not just the people you like, not just the people you agree with, not just the people you believe the same thing as. No, share this hope with everyone always. And he doesn't leave it there just in case you're confused. He goes on. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope you have. But, this part, I don't, th- I don't know if you memorized this part or not. Maybe you did. But, do this with gentleness and respect. With gentleness and respect. Here are some synonyms for gentleness. Kindness, tenderness, mercy, carefulness. Synonyms for respect, appreciation, dignity, esteem, honor, recognition. Just so we're all on the same page. Gentleness and respect. I think it's funny how that part gets left off. When we talk about what we believe with people who don't necessarily believe it, we should do it carefully and with respect and gentleness. Let me offer you a different way of sharing your faith. I'm going to close with this. I'd like for you to consider a hypothetical situation between you and a Muslim. Uh, imagine this person is a neighbor or a work friend, you know, somebody that you know. Maybe there's somebody that you know that even comes to mind. But in this situation, you're not sharing your faith with them. That would be two on the nose. They are sharing their faith with you. I want you to think about how you would receive it. So a Muslim is sharing their faith with you, all right? And here's how they do it. I want you to think about how you would, you know, receive this. So you have a neighbor or a friend who's Muslim, and you've become friends. This isn't a stranger. This is somebody you know. You've hung out. You play some board games together. You've gotten, you know, food together. They've taken you to some restaurants you're not usually going to. It's great. You think they're great. And they know you're a Christian, And they know that you know they're a Muslim, okay? And this friend, neighbor, starts talking about what they believe. Your Muslim friend shares their faith with you. Why? Because it's important to them. They talk casually about what they believe, why they believe it, what it means to them. Maybe at first you get a little nervous thinking, are they going to try to convert me? You know, but you realize they're just talking about it because it's important to them. Here's my question. How would you respond? Would you be interested? Would you enjoy hearing about what your Muslim friend believes? Would you? I would. I would find that fascinating. Very interesting. I hope you would be interested as well. If not, this illustration is going to fall flat. (laughs) So maybe at one point, you know, they start talking about their mosque. They love their mosque. They go every week or maybe like once a month, I don't know. They volunteer in their teen program, you know, and they're, you know, uh, they love raising up the next generation of Muslims. They enjoy volunteering with teens, but, you know, they really love some of the community service that their mosque does and the way that they're helping the, the neighborhood that the mosque is founded. So they tell you stories that their life in the mosque. Would you listen to that? Would you enjoy hearing about it? Would you be glad they trusted you enough to share this part of their life, which is often very vulnerable? Would you realize how big of a deal that was for them to be honest about where they worship and what it means to them? Oh, I hope so. Now, to be fair, at some point, if these conversations continue, you might be curious. You, and you have a right to be. After enough conversation, you might want to know how they feel about LGBTQ. Are they affirming, welcoming, 
are they individually affirming? Is everyone in their mosque affirming? Is it complicated? And you can assume from what you've heard already that they aren't like the extreme Muslims you read about or those two-dimensional caricatures we see in movies. You can tell they love everyone. They believe that Allah loves everyone. Would you find that conversation fascinating? Would you be glad that they talked to you about those things? Would that be meaningful to you? Maybe they go on to tell you about how the mosque is holding this really special event, like a grand opening or something. <laughs> An event that's really, they're, they're really excited about it, you know? And they mentioned it would be fun to have people, you know, have you come along. But, but no pressure, of course. Just like, this is something that I think is cool. Would you consider going? W Let me ask you, would you be insulted or annoyed that they invited you? Think about this hypothetical situation and ask yourself, if you can imagine yourself enjoying a conversation where you hear about another person's faith, can't you imagine someone might enjoy a conversation hearing about yours? And if we withhold it, are we robbing our friends of that experience? I think a good, not everyone's the same, but a good friend who cares about you, a good person who approaches life with curiosity isn't going to judge you for believing in something. They're going to find it interesting at least. <coughs> I want to end by this, saying this. Friends, Christians have done a lot that Christians should be ashamed of. But so has every other religion in the world. You can't carry the responsibility for every Christian or religion, or every person of faith, you would never put that on another person. Or am I crazy? You would never blame your beautiful, friendly Muslim neighbor for what other Muslims have done. Of course you wouldn't. So don't do it to yourself either. There's much that Christians and Muslims and Buddhists and every other view, worldview in the world has done that they should be ashamed of. But whatever you believe, whatever your neighbor believes, hear me when I say this, if you're choosing to love and to bless and to be good in the world, you have nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing to be ashamed of. Good people are going to be okay with who you are, with what you believe, with what you don't believe. And it's okay if you're comfortable to talk about it. And it's okay if you're comfortable to tell people about our church. In fact, they might get excited to hear about some of the, you know, that we're not like other radical versions of Christianity, that we love everyone, that we believe God loves everyone, that they might love to hear something like that. It might just give them hope. Huh, see how that works. They might even be excited <laughs> to hear about our grand opening. I don't know. <laughs> Cards on the table, I already told you. <laughs> um, they might even come just to support you. I don't know. So put yourself out there. So I do encourage you to think about, um, I know there's a lot of baggage around this, but I do encourage you that you have nothing to be ashamed of. If, if we're, we're all trying to do our best, and if we're loving each other and trying to love our neighbors, it's okay to be a Christian, and it's okay not to be if you aren't. And let's just respect and interact with each other with gentleness and respect.